Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you uh, again today and some of you for the first time. As uh, Randy said, we'll be starting today a new sermon series that we'll be working our way through until uh, the fall. So if you would, turn me to the first uh, page in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Um, parents, if you have kids up through fifth grade and would like for them to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now, then you can take them out to the patio where there'll be some volunteers. Uh, or, of course, if you'd want them to stay with you here, that's fine as well. Uh, the sermon this morning will focus on the first 25 verses of the Bible, but I want to read the entire section that these are a part of so we get a sense of the whole as well as where we're headed next week. So Genesis 1, if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a, a blue one. And in this case, it's pretty easy. Just begin in the beginning, and that's where we'll be uh, starting. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening and morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs, and for seasons, and for days, and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. 
And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, don't elbow your neighbor, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And all the vegetarians said, the one of you. (laughs) And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, everything that was in, in the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in his creation." Friends, these are the opening words of the Scriptures, and they are magnificent. Today, we'll, as I said, look at the first 25 verses up to the creation of people, and then, Lord willing, next week, we'll explore the creation of mankind in the image of God. Until God spoke, nothing existed. But at his command, the cosmos burst forth. The message of Genesis chapter 1 is that in the beginning, God created the heavens, earth, and all that is within them. Of everything this text teaches, and there's a lot, that is what is ultimately meant to be seen and believed, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth and all that is within them. Life in 2024 is teeming with information, probably too much information. In this vast sea of data that we have to try to find our way through every day, let not this single idea be lost. God made everything, and He made it good. Of all the questions Genesis 1 raises for the modern reader, and there are many questions. Don't miss that the universe is not a byproduct of conflict among the gods, which was the ancient view, nor is it chance out in space somewhere, which is the modern view. No, friends, God said, and it came to be. 
God spoke and all that He made was good. This chapter is loaded with significance, so much so that, frankly, I think it's difficult to try to decide what to preach on because there's no way to get to everything. I have, uh, the last year or so, been collecting books to work on this series for us to enjoy together this year. And uh, one of the things I've collected is books of sermons on Genesis. Two of them I looked at this week that uh, one has 12 sermons on this passage, the other has 13. Now, I won't do that to you, but I want to encourage you to lean in this morning to this one sermon on this passage. And as you do so, I think we could organize sort of what we need to think about from this passage under three headings. First, let's think about what this teaches us about God. That's mainly what it's for. And second, let's consider what it teaches about His creation, for it's His. And then third, let's think together about our response. What kind of application or response from us does this call for? First, uh, what does this teach us about God? Friends, from the very first verse, God begins His Word with glorious self-revelation of everything to know in life. To know God is most important. Our people-centered instincts tell us Genesis 1 is about us, but those instincts are wrong. Genesis 1 is about God. This is primarily telling us who He is and what He's able to do. Take, for example, just that first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Consider what those few words, one verse, teaches us about God. To get you started on your thinking, I'll give you four things, but I want to encourage you maybe make a note of that question. What does Genesis 1 teach me about God? And let the week be full of meditating and praying about that. I think you'd be amazed at all the things you can derive from this one passage about God. But let me give you, just to get you started, four examples. One, God existed before anything else existed. Now, the implications of that for daily life are many. God existed before anything else existed. This means, if, for example, if you want to find what your life is for, look to Him. God existed before anything else existed. Number two, His power is beyond our comprehension. And just think of the power articulated in that simple, single verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the Adam to the Milky Way, God did that. And by merely speaking, He created the heavens and the earth. Friends, that kind of power harnessed in one person would be horrifying, except for the fact that God is good. 
And therefore, what God's made is good because He is good. Genesis 1 also reveals that God is majestic. Now, majestic is not a word I have heard any of you use recently, but it fits here. Here we see a majestic God because what's created testifies about its creator. The grandeur of an Arizona sunset, we get them often. Don't take those for granted. They're incredible. The grandeur of a sunset, the vastness of the Pacific Ocean, the beauty of the Himalayas, the wonder of a hummingbird, the provision of a fruit tree, the beauty of a babbling brook. God did that. And He is majestic. One more thing that these verses teach us about God is that God rules and reigns. This passage has been understood from the very beginning to be teaching that God is king and that whatever He's made, He reigns over. The Creator is over His creation. We sung about that earlier. One scholar put it this way, with His powerful Word, the King of the universe created the earth as His good kingdom. Friends, this chapter is in our Bibles to tell us that God is king, that He's in charge, that what He says comes to be, that He rules and reigns. Pay attention as you read your Bible, because wherever you are, you won't be far from some portion of the Scriptures that will point back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I mean, it, it literally covers through every book in the Bible that God is creator, that work of the created. That is apparently the most foundational truth we need to know about Him. Think with me, though, also about not only what Genesis 1 reveals about God, but think also about what it rules out. I mean, that first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, tells us that lots of philosophies or ideas marking different eras of time or different cultures are right to try to figure out the source of things, but have reached conclusions that aren't quite right. So I just made a list. Genesis 1 verse 1 rules out atheism. There is a God. It rules out polytheism. There's only one God. It rules out pantheism. What God made isn't God. It rules out deism. God didn't create and then leave. No, He's, he's still involved, engaged, sustaining that which He's made. It rules out philosophical materialism. That stuff is all there is. It rules out scientific naturalism. It rules out Darwinian evolution. All of this we can find literally from the first verse in the Bible. 
Now, not only do we learn about God here, we also learn about His creation. That moves us to our second category of ideas to think about. All the noise of our modern, scientifically oriented minds might cause us to miss the grandeur of what these verses actually say. What I mean by that is if, if, if I go into a room and there's a whole lot of noise, then I may have trouble hearing a single conversation with someone. When we come to a passage like this and there's the noise of everything that's been said about it all around us, that noise can actually cause us to miss what it's actually saying, to have a single conversation with God. This second part of the sermon will be the the most technical, I might even say complicated. And so, um, I don't know if you're accustomed to thinking on Sunday morning or not, but I encourage you to put on your thinking cap with me for a few minutes. And I hope that what I'll show you will awaken a fresh wonder and awe in God, because there's much here that would tell us about Him and what He's made. One major aspect of interpreting Genesis 1 is to attempt to understand why it's organized the way it's organized. I mean, every biblical author started with a blank page. Why did they write what they wrote this way? What's the organizing principle of Genesis chapter 1? Well, you might say, duh, preacher, it's organized by days. And I would say, yes, you're exactly right. But why? What does that organization tell us? Why these creative acts in this creative order? Especially when the order is pretty confusing. I mean, take for example, the fact that the sun and moon don't show up until day four but some sort of light existed on day one, and two, and three. And vegetation and trees did fine on day three without there being what they need from the sun. That's weird, isn't it? Why these creative acts in this created order? Well, verse 2 tells us. Verse 2 forms the organizing principle of the passage. The earth, here's the key, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God's first creative act was to make the heavens and the earth, but the earth at that point was incomplete and uninhabitable. Like a potter first goes and scoops some clay, throws it over a piece of string, forms it into a mass, and then plops it down hard on the potter's wheel. God first created the earth as sort of this blob that wasn't yet able to do anything for anyone. God first made the earth, and then He shaped it into something beautiful and useful. 
That's what without form and void in verse 2 is telling us. What we call earth was first dark, even ominous. But what solved that, quote, unquote, problem, if you will? Well, God did. And He did it in a particular way. He did it in a way that shows that He is perfect and that what He's made is good. Now, this, again, I, said, I told you is technical, but hang with me. Again, I think the application is really cool. If you were to take out your, your bulletin on that page that you may have never seen if you open it, it says sermon notes, there's a big blank page. If you were to take that page and draw a line down the middle, so make two columns. On the left side, you can write days one, two, and three. And then on the right side, you could write days four, wow, brilliant, four, five, and six. Great, okay? So we have two columns, six days. Now then our next exercise would be to say, well, what, how could I summarize what happened on each of those days? If you were to go through that exercise, here's what you'd find in summary form. The left side of your page, that left column, days one, two, and three, are all about God forming things. On the right side, days four, five, and six, are all about God filling what He formed. Now look again at verse two. They are left-hand column without form, so He's giving them form. They are void, so he's giving them unvoidedness. I'm using the word filled to convey that. Now, it gets even more specific than that because if you now take that two columns and draw two lines between the days, what you'd find is that day one corresponds to day four. What was formed on day one is filled on day four. What was formed on day two is filled on day five. What was formed on day, thank you, Ben, three was filled on day six. That is, the grand potter took some clay and formed the earth. And then with each successive day, he first formed it and then filled it. Now, if that's too ethereal for you, then let's just take one, one pair of days, okay? Day three. So if you look at verse 9, and if we summarize what's happening, God governed the water that was covering the whole earth, directing it into certain areas, causing dry land to then appear. And then notice that out of what He already made, God didn't take trees or plants from somewhere else. He grew, drew them up out of the earth 
That is, He formed an habitable earth as we know it today. Those are all forming actions. Then if we jump over to day six, God filled what He'd already formed. Down in verse 24, this is God filling the land. He filled it by putting animals there to live. And as we'll talk about next week, the crown jewel of what God made was His creation of people. Friends, if you read slowly, carefully, and prayerfully, Genesis 1 is a meticulously organized, incredible articulation of what God is like by describing what He's made. There's a beauty, a a correspondence, a, a parity, an intentionality to this God. Nothing is happenstance. None of it is an accident. The cosmos and the earth came to be at the command of God, and God formed, and then God filled. Why? Well, because, as we see this phrase repeated, He wanted it to yield according to its kind. He had a design in it from beginning to end. Isn't that remarkable? Just awesome what it tells us about Him. Some of you are not amazed, though. So let's take a different angle, all right? Another detail we can look at in this passage is through numbers. Now, I recognize you you, you probably got up this morning and think, thought, I'm going to go to church because I want some numerology. Well, I'm here to, uh, to please. <laughs> Genesis 1, 1 through Genesis 2, 3 tell us things through numbers. Now, to the non-wacko in the modern age, numbers don't carry much symbolic meaning. But... Not so for the Hebrew, and therefore not so to our Scriptures. A a number can mean the literal number, so not six, not eight, but seven, seven somethings. In the Bible, the number seven can mean seven. But it also, in the Hebrew mind, pointed to or represented or was a symbol for completion or perfection. That's why the number seven is scattered throughout this chapter. Did you notice how often it's there? I mean, it's all over the place. And again, for the Hebrew mind, that points to the perfection of God and the completion of what He's made. Let me show you a few sevens. First, some ones that you, you didn't notice, maybe. In the original language of Genesis 1, it was written in, in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the first verse has seven letters. The second verse has, uh, not letters, no, uh, words. The first verse has seven words. 
It's a summary. The second verse has exactly 14 Hebrew words. That's how many sevenths? Two. If you were to keep reading, you'd find things like the heavens and earth are each mentioned 21 times. That's three groups of seven. And if you kept reading, then you'd find the word God. Here, in each case, is the proper name of God. Uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, one of the earliest names for God. Not Yahweh, but Elohim. Elohim is used exactly 35 times. Now, this is really stretching your numerology. That's five sevens. Now, maybe that's too ethereal for you, or maybe you think, boy, he's really stretching it today. Take the one that's the most obvious. What day did we leave out in our columns? Seven. Why? Because there was no creative act done on that day. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Well, because He's telling us it's complete. It's finished. I'm going to kick my shoes off, sit back, and enjoy it. The rest of the seventh day is a picture of the perfection of God and the completeness of what He has made. Isn't God and His creation and His Bible amazing? Now, very briefly, before we go on to our third category to think through today, namely our response, what do we do with this chapter? I, I, I think I'd be remiss not to address a question some people have asked. Here's the question. Were the days of Genesis chapter 1 literal 24-hour days like we know them today? So did they follow the same kind of uh, timing and calendaring that we use? We want our answer to that question to be governed by what the passage itself tells us and what the rest of the Bible illuminates about that passage. Because words always have their meaning in the context they're in. You think of all the words you use in a normal week that taken out of the context they were in and placed in another means something different. That is also true of the words in the Bible. And so we find the meaning, the, the range is available to us and we find the particular meaning in the text we're in. So the question is, are these 24-hour days, is that what's meant by the word day in the passage? Are you with me? Are these 24-hour days? Maybe. They certainly could have been. I mean, a God who's able to create everything out of nothing, a God who can simply speak and stuff happens, certainly he has the power and ability to create everything out of nothing in the span of a common 
ordinary, modern work week, six days, right? He's got the ability to do that. He has the power to. Many Christians, ever since this was written, have believed that was the intention of the author of Genesis for good reason. It might be correct. This might be six 24-hour days. However, they may not have been. You see, the word, the Hebrew word for day is the word yom. Turn to your neighbor and say yom. Now, that's just to relieve the tension for some of you about what I'm going to say. All right? Yom. The word yom can mean 24-hour day, but it can mean other things too. In fact, it means other things in the passage itself. Take, for example, the first occurrence of the word yom. It's in verse 5. Do you see it? He called the light day. Now, there we have a definition. Day, in its first instance, is clearly not 24 hours because the next verse, the rest of the verse says, and he called the darkness night. So, day there, yom, means something like daylight. And if we were going to try to quantify that in time, we would say, well, unless you're living in Alaska, you're looking at about 12 hours. So that's the first occurrence of the word. It means the same thing in verses 16, 17, and 18. However, in verse 14, yom is used in such a way it it certainly seems like a 24-hour period is probable. While then, if you look ahead a little bit, chapter 2, verse 4, yom clearly refers to all six days of creation. So here we have definitely, definitively, no question about it, yom means daylight or 12 hours. Yom means probably normal day, 24 hours. And then finally, yom means all six creative days. Furthermore, if the sun and moon didn't exist until day four, and the sun and moon are what govern a day, then why assume days one through three were governed by them and they were Six, there were three 24-hour days. Here's my point. Either view is possible. In fact, the text, the passage, doesn't answer the question lucidly. Therefore, we must not demand that all Christians everywhere, and more importantly, that these Christians here must see that in exactly the same way. That God made everything, that He made it out of nothing, that He was first and everything came from Him, that Genesis 1 is real history. It's not a metaphorical, warm, fuzzy story. 
but it's what actually happened? Friends, those things are fundamental, clear, biblical matters of orthodoxy that we should rightly say all Christians everywhere, if they will submit to God, must believe. But if you think these were probably not 24-hour days, but rather something like God days, some longer stretch of time, and I think, no, they probably were 24-hour days, that should not bring us to blows. It doesn't matter. No doctrine in the rest of the Bible hinges on a certain view. Therefore, let's be charitable to one another and content with what the Bible says and what it doesn't say in such a way that it's clear enough we all must agree. This is why the, 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 the best statements of faith throughout the ages haven't taken a view on it. It's why ours doesn't. Now, I'm not telling you don't have an opinion, don't even have a strong one. And I'm happy to discuss this more with you after the gathering ends if you'd like. Perhaps you can help me in some way I haven't yet come to understand it clearly enough. But I don't think the passage actually answers the question. Now, let's very briefly consider what this magnificent chapter calls for. What response does it beg? Considering all that this reveals about God and the few things we've looked at that it tells us about His creation, how should we respond to it? What's it here for? What's the right application? Well, I would suggest that embedded in the passage, it's clear that there are three things we, we must do in response. Number one, worship. Number two, obedience or obey. Number three, comfort. Worship, obedience, and comfort. These are the right responses to Genesis chapter one. Christian, you serve, love, know, have been created by and recreated by a big God. He is awe-inspiring. He's vastly superior to everyone else. He has power unparalleled, and he's good. And he wants you to know him and where you've come from and what you're for. Worship him. He's marvelous. I love the way Revelation 4 puts it. So the last book in the Bible, pointing back to the first book, tells us Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. As Maddie said earlier, God's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy of worship. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then this chapter points you toward understanding that worship is what life is about. 
And as the New Testament goes on to say, that this Jesus is the one who created the world. And he's worthy of worship because the creator in the first century entered into the creation. Why? Well, John chapter 1 tells us very clearly, and it's written in such a way that it's meant to echo and complete what Genesis 1 says, because John chapter 1 begins by in the beginning, you remember? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later down it tells us that this Word, this Jesus, became a man entering his creation in order that he could die in place of sinners. Friend, if you don't know God, then the most important thing we could tell you today is that you were made to know him, but you're separated from him by sin, and yet God chose to enter his creation that through believing and trusting Him, you could experience the reason why you're alive, to worship God. Boy, we'd sure love to tell you more about Him. If you don't have a Bible, take one of those from underneath the seat in front of you, and maybe you could ask someone, hey, would you meet with me for a few weeks and help me read one of the books about Jesus in the Bible? Take Mark, for example, in the New Testament. Get together and read that book and see what it says about Jesus. You'll have a wonderful time doing so. If you have trouble finding somebody to do that with you, I would love to help you. So come see me after the gathering. And we've got lots of people who would love to connect and spend time in Mark with you. This passage also calls us to obedience. Church, God is king of the universe. We might say he's creator, owner, president, CEO, CFO, and all the other OOOs. God's in charge. Therefore, his commands are to govern our lives. We obey him because he's the creator. Christian, Is there any area of your life marked primarily right now by disobedience, not obedience? Outside of worshiping God, the best way to respond to Genesis 1 is to say to him today, I have not been obedient in this area, and I want to be. I confess that sin and turn from it. I thank you for your forgiveness, God. Would you help me this week to obey more than I disobey? Finally, this chapter is here in order to give us comfort. The world can be a scary place. Scary things happen here. They may happen to you. And things often feel chaotic even, I might say, spinning out of control. If you don't recognize that feeling 
around you or in you, then probably as we move more and more close to the election in November, you will. Because that's what we're going to hear constantly. Watch the news, talk to a friend, listen to the top, top couple of podcasts by actual experts in the field. They'll all tell you, um, here's the truth, I know it, everybody else is wrong. This leaves us asking, is there a point to life? Does anyone actually know what's going on? Is there someone in control? Is there any design and intention to life? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why am I here? Church Genesis 1 answers these questions. Yes, these verses call us to worship. Yes, they call us to obey. But I think their first audience probably also found great comfort in them. Because you see, in the world they lived in, the view was that creation came about because the gods got in a fight. And life is about appeasing those gods. What an awful way to live. In that setting, Genesis 1 says, God, God made it. And He made it good. You can trust Him. The world isn't spinning out of control, nor is it without design or inherently full of happenstance. God made it. And in His power, brothers and sisters, you can today enjoy peace and comfort. You can sit down on the inside. You can do so even now. Genesis 1 calls you to rest in Him. Because what He's made, He's got. As the old song says, and I'll spare you. He's got the whole world in His hand. Let's pray. Father, we've just stuck our toe in to the Scriptures and we're already in awe of who you are, amazed at your power and glory. Would you reshape our view of you and what you've made through this time together? And would you call forth from us worship, obedience, and the experience of the comfort that's ours in Christ? Thank you for what this tells us about you. And we ask you that this would reshape, reform, remold our perception of you. Because in so doing, we will be far more able to enjoy the rest and peace that are ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.